Well, good morning. Welcome to River City. My name's Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, good to be with you guys this morning, starting a new year. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. Glad to have you. If there are any ways that we can serve you, help you get connected to the community here, we'd love to do that. Come find me afterwards, or Aaron, or, or uh, one of the people whose pictures you saw up there for small groups. We'd love to help get you connected. So uh, I don't know you, about you, but I love the start of New Year's. It's always, for me, it's always this exciting time of year, and, and uh, especially the, this year is really exciting. Last year um, was a really exciting year for our church. It was cool to see God just got at work in, in our midst and growing us and maturing us together, and uh, we moved into this space here, uh, which is such a blessing from God. It was a really cool year last year, and so we are just really excited to see what God is up to this coming year uh, in and through the community that he's establishing here at River City. But... Um, like I said, I love New Year's, and a lot of the reason for that is because I'm a big picture kind of guy. And so New Year's is always this exciting time because it feels like a fresh start. It feels like new beginnings, new things happening. It's always full of hope and anticipation, and it has like this, this tone of like, wow, new things are happening. Something exciting could happen this coming year. And I love to dream about that stuff and, and what would happen. And, and I don't know about you, but uh, I used to write New Year's resolutions at the beginning uh, of, the, of every year. And what I realized over time is that my New Year's resolutions were basically the same every year. And uh, they were just used slightly different wording or a nicer pen or something like that, right? Uh, but they always ended the same way every year. Because within a few weeks, I had either given up on them entirely or just forgotten about them altogether. And... Uh, whether well, that was to pray more or try to lose some weight or whatever it was, I failed at keeping most of my New Year's resolutions. Uh, and I'm not alone because the facts, the facts uh, tell us that, the, the stats say that nearly 80% of New Year's resolutions fail by mid-February. And only 8% of people keep their New Year's resolutions the whole year. And so New Year's resolutions, they're kind of like promises that we make that we kind of just intend on not keeping almost. There are promises that we make to ourselves or to others that we usually just fail to keep. And, and it's not unusual because we fail to keep our promises all the time. Sometimes we just forget about the things that we promise to do. Some, sometimes uh, we lose the motivation to keep our promises. And sometimes, no matter how hard we try, we just can't do it. It's just not in our power to be able to keep the promises that we make. Now, I'm not trying to uh, discourage you from making New Year's resolutions. I'm not trying to encourage you to give up on the ones that you may have already made. That's, that's not what I'm trying to do. But instead, what I'm trying to point out is that our inability to keep our resolutions, our, our inability to keep our promises, it reveals that by nature we are both inconsistent and insufficient to bring about our own will. We are both inconsistent and insufficient to bring about our own will, to keep our own promises. And, and because that's the way that we are, oftentimes we think about God in that kind of a way as well. Now, we don't say that out loud or we don't even think that clearly or we don't have this concrete thought about that. But that's the, what we functionally believe all the time, you see, because we doubt God all the time. We doubt his promises. We, we doubt his faithfulness. We doubt his goodness. We doubt, we doubt his presence. And we're not alone in that because the people that Matthew is writing the, his gospel to, they were people who were full of doubt as well. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God had promised again and again that one day he was going to send someone to rescue his people, to save them from their sin. And like we saw throughout the book of Genesis this fall in the opening, and in the opening verses of Matthew's gospel uh, this, this winter here, the Old Testament is littered with people who showed lots of promise. 
but who ultimately showed that they could not deliver Israel. They could not save God's people. They could not save them from their sin. And so we get to the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, and God's promised Savior still has not come. And then what happens is God is silent for 400 years. God is silent for 400 years, and and God's people are left wondering, is God still there? Is he faithful? Is he going to keep his promise? Does he he even remember what he said he would do? And so it's into that doubt-filled silence that Matthew begins his gospel with a reminder of the promises that God has made to his people, his promises to save them, his promises to rescue them. But Matthew's gospel doesn't just begin with a reminder of God's promises. It begins with a proclamation that in Jesus, God is keeping his promises. That in Jesus, God is keeping the promises that he made to rescue his people. In Jesus, God is fulfilling his promises to rescue his people from their sin. And that's the main theme of these opening chapters of Matthew's gospel, which present the account of Jesus' birth to us. You see, and as we study the climax of of that birth story this morning at the end of chapter 2 of Matthew, what we're going to see is the good news of of that proclamation. We're going to see that ring out again this morning, that in Jesus, God's unshakable promises to rescue his people are being fulfilled. And it's a rescue that ushers in a new exodus, a new hope, and a new kind of kingdom. It is such a good rescue. It's an incredible rescue that Matthew is proclaiming this morning. It was good news to doubting hearts 2,000 years ago, and it indeed is good news to ours this morning. So let's pray. We'll dive into God's word and begin our study this morning. Jesus, we are so thankful for you. We are thankful for your word that you might give it to us so that we might know you and have hope in you. And God, and so we just come together this morning, God, we just say, God, for our time to be fruitful and good and valuable, God, we need you to be the one at work in us. I need you to fill me with your spirit so that our, what I have to say is from you and not from me. God, I, we need you to give us teachable and moldable hearts. God, we come dependent on you. And so, God, we just humbly ask, would you graciously speak to us through your word? God, for our good, for your glory, God, would you be at work in our lives this morning? God, we trust that you will. Amen. Amen. Well, um, we are diving into the book of Matthew. We started the book of Matthew just before Christmas, kind of in timing with that. The book of Matthew begins with the birth story of Jesus. And this morning, we're at the end of chapter 2, kind of wrapping that up. And, and what's pretty common, if you're new to River City, what's pretty common is we just kind of pick a book of the Bible and chug on through. And we try to go verse by verse and, and just basically study God's Word, because what we want to have happen here is we want God's Word to be the thing that informs and transforms our time together and our hearts. And we want God's Word to be at the center of what's going on here. And so uh, we're in the book of Matthew this morning. We will be in the book of Matthew for most of this year, and so we're excited about that. But we pick up our passage this morning at the end of chapter 2, and, and where Aaron's preached about last week was the story of the Magi, the, the wise men who came to worship Jesus. And so the, our passage this morning picks up right after the Magi have left. So we're in Matthew chapter 2, begin in verse 13. And so when they had gone, again, that's the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, get up. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there, until I, uh, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he learned from the Magi. And 
Uh, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel is weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for they were trying, for those who were trying to take your child's life are dead. And so he got up and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was again, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. You see, as we study God's word this morning, what I want to show you is that Matthew is announcing, he is proclaiming that in the coming of Jesus, God's unshakable promises to rescue his people are being fulfilled. And it's a rescue that Jesus ushers in. It's a rescue that ushers in a new exodus, a new hope, and a new kind of kingdom. And so, in other words, what Matthew is doing is he is, he is telling us the identity of the rescuer, and he's telling us about the kind of rescue that he brings. And so, first thing I want us to see this morning, God's unshakable promises to rescue his people are being fulfilled in Jesus. You know, you don't really have to be paying super close attention to notice that Matthew is trying to hammer home the idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. And there's two reasons why Matthew is highlighting this for us, and both of them have to do with the idea of assurance. And the first is this, he's trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one who God promised he would send to rescue his people. Now, we saw just before Christmas that Matthew in the birth of Jesus was, was telling us that Jesus is the only one who could be the Savior because he alone was God and man. And what Matthew's doing here at the end of chapter 2 is saying is that Jesus is the only one who could be the Savior because he's the only one that fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament. See, three times in our passage this morning and another 12 times throughout his book, Matthew overtly speaks about Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Another dozen or so times throughout the book, he alludes to that happening. Like, for example, earlier in chapter 2 when we saw how uh, Herod learns that the Messiah was promised to be born in Bethlehem like Jesus was. And so what Matthew is doing is he's saying, this is the one. Jesus is the one. He is the promised Messiah. He fulfills all that the prophets wrote about, not just some of them, not just part of them. He fulfills all of them. He fulfills them in full. You see, uh, math professor Peter Stoner and 600 of his students calculated the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies that are about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And the odds that they calculated for just eight are astronomical. It's something like 10 to the 21st power of likelihood. And that's just eight. You see, in Matthew alone, Jesus fulfills dozens of prophecies. Throughout the whole New Testament, over 60 things Jesus fulfills. The odds against one person doing that are beyond mathematical probabilities. It's not a thing. It's not happening. You see, and while Matthew, he's not writing to, uh, he's not writing to math scholars in the first century, he is writing to people who had doubts. He is writing to people who were unsure. He is writing to people who, who needed some assurance. See, they had gotten their hopes up too many times, only to have them come crashing down. And so Matthew, we see here, is he's, he's, he's meeting them in their doubts. He's meeting them in their uncertainty. And this is just really important for us to see the graciousness of God in meeting people in their doubts and meeting them in their uncertainty. Now, what's important for us to see, though, later in the book of Matthew, people come to Jesus and they demand things from him. 
They demand a sign. They demand him to prove who he is. And Jesus does not just like dive into that with them. He's not just about to give into your demands for whatever you need from him. But God is gracious to meet us in our humble questioning. He's gracious to meet us in our curiosity. He's gracious to meet us in the unknowns of faith. And he, we see that in the book of Matthew here. We see God just graciously meeting the Israelites, meeting the people in that uncertainty and saying, I know it's been a while since I said something. I know, I know it feels like I might be gone. I know it feels like I might be silent. Let me remind you what I said. And here's how you know. Here's, here's the proof. Here's the assurance that your heart is looking for. God wants to meet you in the midst of that as well. And so Matthew is saying, trust me, he's here, the Messiah, the King, the, the Savior that we have been longing for, that we've been waiting for. He is be here, and here's how you can be sure that Jesus is the one. He fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies about who the Messiah would be, all of them in full. It's him. But the good news of this passage isn't just the, the assurance that the promised rescuer has come. It's, it's also the assurance that nothing could stop him from coming and nothing could stop him from accomplishing why he came. You see, no amount of time or opposition could thwart God's plan to rescue his people. No earthly king or kingdom could stop God from accomplishing his will or, or keeping his promises. Not even a paranoid and murderous psychopath like King Herod. Aaron talked about Herod last week. That guy was a straight-up lunatic. Like murdered his own children, his own sons, because he thought they might want to try to take his throne from him. Like the, the dude was just a lunatic and just power hungry and crazy, just straight up crazy. In fact, at his death, he was worried that people wouldn't be sad that he died. And so he had plans to order up all of the people who were going to like take it, like the next people in power and have all of them killed at the moment his death was announced. That's the kind of straight-up lunatic this guy was. Like, just crazy. And what Matthew is saying is that this guy who is a lunatic, who has great power over this area, he really has no power at all. And his plans have not stopped God from doing what he said he was going to do. In fact, they haven't even faced it. You see, Herod thinks he's so tricky. Earlier in chapter 2, he finds out that the Magi are looking for Jesus, and he says, oh, hey, when you find him, let me know. Because I'd love to come and worship him with some cyanide as well. It's just a different kind of gift, right? But in, in verse 12, so God warns the Magi of Herod's murderous intent through a dream, and so they sidestep him on their way back. And again, in verse 13, this morning, we see God again uses a dream to intervene. He tells Joseph to take his family to Egypt and to escape what Herod is about to do. See, God's plan is never in danger. His purposes are never unsure. His his Ability to keep his promise is never in question. You see, God is sovereign over all times, over all peoples, over all nations, over all rulers. Nothing could ever stop his plan to rescue his people. Nothing was going to stop it. And so Matthew is writing, and his, he is heralding this fact. The most powerful person that you can think of right now, they have no power to stop what God is doing. He is sufficient. He is sovereign to keep his promises. And so by referencing these Old Testament passages, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of God's unshakable promises to rescue his people. But he's telling us a little bit more than that. And this is where it gets really good. You see, in each of these references, Matthew's not just showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. He's giving us a glimpse. He's giving us a picture of the kind of rescue that Jesus brings. 
he's giving us just a little taste of what he's going to lay out for us in the rest of the book, of what the kind of rescue that Jesus brings is going to look like, what kind of rescue he ushers in. And so I want to just take a closer look at each of these three things that Matthew tells us that Jesus fulfills. The first we see in verse 15. So God had warned Joseph about Herod's plan to kill all the baby boys uh, throughout Bethlehem. And so God tells him, go to Egypt. And so Matthew writes, so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. He's quoting uh, from the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter 11. And some people, some people use this verse as a prime example of like, Matthew, this is not, a, like, your quotations of the Old Testament are crazy. Like, did you even read the stuff that you were quoting? None of that makes sense. What are you, what are you doing here, right? And so a lot of times people think that Matthew is just kind of off his rocker and they, and they take him out of context. He's taking things out of context. Because in its original passage, Hosea 11, it wasn't really a prophecy about the Messiah at all. It was just a statement about God's people, God saving his people, them escaping, uh, escaping Egypt in, in, in the Exodus. And so in the full sentence it reads, When Israel's a child, I loved him and I called Egypt, I called out of Egypt, I called my son. And so in the Old Testament, Israel is often metaphorically described as God's son or God's children, God's people, right? So the question is, how, how, what is Matthew doing when he's applying this passage uh, to Jesus? Is he just distorting the meaning of the text to fit his agenda? Is he just ignoring the, the most basic rule of Bible reading, which is know the context of what you're reading? Uh, no, safely no. You can actually trust your Bible. You can actually trust the people who wrote it. You see, what Matthew is doing here is what he has in view is what Jesus told the guys he met on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection in Luke 24 when he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, you hear me say this all the time here at River City. All of the Bible is about Jesus. He is the point of all of it. The Old Testament is looking forward to his coming. The Gospels are about his coming. The New Testament is in light of his coming and in anticipation of his return. You see, Jesus is the point. He is the center. He is the thing to which all of the Bible is wrapped around. And see, what happens is Matthew, sometimes he's showing us how Jesus is this direct prediction fulfillment of these messianic prophecies. Like, for example, with Jesus, the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. But oftentimes what Matthew is doing, like he's doing here, is he's showing us how Jesus is the true and ultimate fulfillment of what the Old Testament was pointing to. Whether that was the Old Testament scriptures in general, or or maybe sometimes a specific part of Israel's history. You see, Matthew was not misapplying Hosea. Instead, under the direction of God's spirit, what he's doing is he's showing us that this passage in Hosea and the story of God's deliverance of Israel through their exodus in Egypt was ultimately a foreshadowing of of what God was going to do ultimately in the person and the work of Jesus for all people. One commentator writes it this way. He says, just as God brought his son Israel out of Egypt, so Jesus, the true and better son of God, comes out of Egypt as well. And where Israel failed to live, as, uh, to live as the children of God called them to be, Jesus, who serves as their representative, does not fail. And so in doing, he ushers in a new and better exodus, not out of the physical slavery of Egypt, but out of the spiritual bondage to sin. You see, Matthew is saying, Jesus has come. The promised Messiah has come, and he is bringing a better rescue. He is bringing the ultimate rescue. It's not just from slavery to Egypt. It's not just from oppression in Rome. No, the rescue that Jesus is bringing is the ultimate exodus. It's the ultimate escape because it's an escape from sin. 
I see the rescue Jesus brings as the ultimate exodus. But that's not all, because in Jesus' fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, which is being quoted, what we see in verse 17, we see that the rescue that Jesus ushers in is not just the ultimate exodus, it ushers in a brand new kind of hope. Jeremiah 31, 15, again, verse 17 in our passage this morning is quoting that, it's referencing that. It offers hope to the mothers of Israel's children that are being taken off into exile. You see, after God had brought Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, they sinned so persistently and so pervasively that God sent them into exile in Babylon. And so the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem and they destroyed the city and they took a bunch of Jewish people captives and they, and they took them and they held them as prisoners in a place just north of Jerusalem called Ramah. And from there, these families, they were torn apart. And children were sold off into slavery into various Babylonian homes and families and sent off across the world. And it is this heart-wrenching scene of kids being torn from their parents it is this heart-wrenching scene of families being torn apart, of, of the ravaging consequences of sin. And Matthew here, he applies the passage to these mothers in the first century Israel or their anguish over their babies who Herod massacres. And in the midst of this horrific pain, Matthew is reminding us of the hope that Jeremiah speaks of. Because he writes in here of the, of the weeping and mourning of the mothers in Ramah. The next verse in Jeremiah says this, One day your weeping shall cease, because there is coming one day a hope. You see, it's a hope that one day God is going to bring those exiles back. He's going to bring them out of exile and back into the presence of God. You see, in telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophetic encouragement, He's saying that Jesus is the ultimate hope that Jeremiah spoke of. He is the one that God is going to use to, re- to bring his rebellious people back into right relationship with him. You see, on the one hand, there is horrific news. Dozens of babies have been killed by Herod in the small town of Bethlehem. But at the same time, there is good news. There is hope because a new king is born. A new king who is coming to rule and to reign and to usher in a brand new kind of kingdom. One that overcomes mourning with hope. One that brings life where there is death. One that brings relationship where there was aloneness. And so Matthew is showing us that Jesus' rescue, it ushers in a a life-giving hope because he has not only come to bring the ultimate exodus, the deliverance from our slavery to sin, but because he's bringing the ultimate redemption by bringing rebellious sinners out of exile and into right relationship with God. And in verse 23, we get a glimpse of how Jesus is going to accomplish those things. Verse 23, we we see God, uh, God led Joseph to bring his family back from Egypt to Israel to the district of Galilee. And so Matthew writes in verse 23, so it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. And this is really the most interesting of all of them, because if you, if you do the digging, what you find is that you can't really find that quote anywhere. It's not in any of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, it's not even in the Old Testament anywhere. Like, there, there isn't anything that really looks like that. So the question is, what is going on? What, what is Matthew talking about? You see, and what it appears, uh, the commentators, mostly, they, they all kind of agree on this. What appears is that Jesus, what Matthew is doing is that in referencing Jesus being a Nazarene, Matthew is drawing attention to, what, to one of the main themes that all, almost all of the Old Testament prophets write about with regards to the Messiah, that he was going to be despised and disregarded. You see, Nazareth was not a good place to be from. You didn't, you didn't, it's like writing, like, I'm from Gary, Indiana, right? It's like the place you don't want to be known that you're from. 
You see, a man from Nazareth was despised in Jesus' day. It was an obscure and unimportant town from which no good was thought to come. One commentator writes it, Jesus of Bethlehem? That would have had the connotation of a royal city and, and this messianic line. But Jesus of Nazareth? That just has the tones of contempt. It's like the, ugh. Really? Isaiah 53, he articulates well this idea that many of the prophets write about. Speaking of the Messiah, he says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. And see, what Matthew is telling us is that Jesus has come and he's bringing the ultimate exodus and he is bringing the hope we have so desperately longed for. And he's bringing it to people who desperately need him to. You see, Jesus brings about his kingdom in a way that no other king does. He gets the results of a king, but he doesn't use the methods of any other king. Other kings use power. They conquer and they overtake. They dominate through the, through the use of force or through military or political or ideological. But Jesus' kingdom is altogether different because he does not arrive in power and might and with majesty and glory. No, he arrives in obscurity. He arrives in humility. And not just to save those who are joyfully embracing his, his coming, but to save those who would despise and reject his coming. You see, and that is not just the Israelites who missed him. It's not just King Herod who violently opposed his coming. You see, that is you and me. You see, Matthew chapter 2, it, it's presenting these two contrasting responses to the proclamation of the coming of King Jesus. And they serve as a paradigm for us about the only two responses that we can really have to Jesus. David Platt, one pastor, he writes this. He says, on the one hand, we have Herod, a proud and murderous, yet weak and paranoid ruler seeking to kill Jesus. On the other hand, we have the Magi, humble, determined, wise worshipers of Jesus. It is, and it's a portrait of the varied responses to Jesus throughout the rest of his life. Some are proud and murderous. Others are humble and worshipful. And in the middle we see Jesus. You see, Matthew's proclamation about this king is one that all peoples must respond to. Because the king that Matthew is proclaiming is not just the king of Israel. He is the king of the nations. He's the king of all peoples, of all times, of all places. He's the king of the low. He is the king of the high. King Jesus is king over everything. And so the question is, how will you respond to him? And there are only two responses. You either will respond as a humble, seeking worshiper like the Magi did, or we will respond as hostile kings like Herod. You see, and the truth is, is that the only way that we are able to respond as humble, seeking worshipers is to admit that by nature we are hostile kings. See, one commentator writes it this way. He says, this whole unsavory story about Herod's activity in all this is an awesome reminder of how deeply opposition to Jesus can be rooted in the hearts of people who are not prepared to allow his gentle rule to control them. You see, if we are determined to get our own way at all costs, we will go to any lengths to eliminate Jesus' claims on our life. John 3, 19, it echoes this one. It says, the verdict, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people have loved darkness instead of the light. 
You see, you and I, we are far more like the, the hostile King Herod than we are the wise magi. You see, Jesus' kingdom is good news because it is the path to true and lasting life. But it is also a path of death. It means the death of our own little kingdoms. It means the death of, of our own will and our own power and our own glory. And so when we hear the proclamation of Jesus' kingdom, when he says, I have come to rule and to reign, and my reign is good news for you, but it requires total surrender, we war against that. You see, when we hear that Jesus' kingdom requires a total surrender, that, that we lay down our careers, that we lay down our families, that we lay down our sexual desires, that we lay down our money, that we lay down our goals and our priorities and our longings, we say, no, Jesus, you can have some, but you cannot have it all. Because deep down, we don't want to surrender. What we long for is to build our own kingdoms. We want to rule our kingdoms in the way that we see fit. We want to build our own kingdoms, and we want to rule our world, and we want to view our money and sex and work and family and pleasure and fulfillment. We want to view those things however we want to view them. We want to decide the way that they should be. You see, we want to be king, and Jesus' kingdom comes in and is approximation that there is one king, and it's not you, and it's not me. You see, and if we're going to respond like the wise magi did, we're going to need to admit that our default response is not humble worship. Our default response is to is a hostile one, like that of King Herod. See, Jesus' coming is a declaration that you and I, that we are not the true king, that he is, and that our kingdoms, they stand opposed to him. And so we can either helplessly and tragically stand opposed to King Jesus, or we can humbly bow at the feet of the Savior that we have so desperately needed and who has come to save sinners, not those who were just eagerly waiting for him, but those who despised and rejected him. You see, and that's what we're doing every week when we celebrate communion. What we're remembering, what we're celebrating is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the one who has fulfilled all of God's promises to come and save rebellious sinners like you and like I. And his rescue ushers in the ultimate exodus that we really need, which is deliverance from sin. And his rescue ushers in the arrival of the hope that our hearts have really longed for. And his rescue ushers in a new kind of kingdom, one characterized as an upside-down kingdom full of grace. And the bread and the drink, they remind us of Jesus' body and his blood, which were broken for us and shed for us. As he lived the life that you and I were supposed to live, and as he died the death that you and I deserved to die. And in so doing, he paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven and brought back out of exile into right relationship with God. That we might be set free from the power of sin. That we might be given the hope that, that fills the life that we are called to live. And so what we're doing every week when we take communion is we are proclaiming the gospel. We're reminding ourselves of who Jesus is and what he did for us and how that radically changes everything about who we are. You see, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him. Nothing can do that apart from faith in the person and the work of Jesus. And so this morning, if you have trusted him, if you have put your hope in him, if he is the one that you have looked to to give you the ultimate exodus, to deliver you from your sin, to give you the hope that your life so desperately longs for. And during our time of worship, go back and take communion. 
Do it as a celebration, as an enjoyment, remembering who God is and all that he has done for you. And as you do, I would encourage you, talk with God. Ask him to keep revealing to you the beauty and the joy of what it means that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. Ask him day by day to keep showing you how good news it is, who Jesus is and all that he came to do, all the promises that God keeps in him. But more than that, ask God to show you the rebellion in your own heart. Ask him to show you the doubt in your own heart. Ask him to show you the uncertainty there. Ask him to meet you in the midst of that. Bring about a repentance in you, a turning from your own kingdom towards his kingdom. And ask him to empower you to respond like the magi in humble and confident worship. You see, nothing could stop God from keeping his promise to come rescue his people. But Jesus makes another promise, that he is coming again. And there is nothing that can stop him from keeping his promise. He's coming again. Hebrews 9 tells it this way, to save those who are eagerly waiting for his return. The invitation that Matthew is, is heralding for us this morning is that the one who has come to rescue has come. He is here. The message about him is clear. He is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. God's unshakable promises to, to rescue his people have come true in the person and the work of Jesus. And there are only two responses to him. Ask God by his grace that he may empower you to respond like the humble magi. In, in confident worship, humble worship, for your good, for his glory, we pray. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are so grateful for you. God, we are grateful that you would come to rescue us. Thank you that in our story this morning in Matthew, God, we are reminded about your unshakable promises to rescue your people being fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. God, we are thankful that the kind of rescue that you bring, the kind of rescue that, pro that you promise is not just a little one. It's not just a partial rescue. It's not just an incomplete one. It's a full rescue. It's a complete rescue. It's a, it's a true and better rescue. And so, God, we are so grateful that you might rescue us from sin, that you might give us a hope that our hearts long for, and that you might usher in a kingdom full of grace. God, help us to be a people who lives in light of that proclamation, who lives in light of your coming and in, of, in light of your imminent return. God, may we be your people who declare your goodness and your promises being fulfilled. God, for our good, for your glory, we pray. Amen.